Won't You Be My Neighbor? From the sermon series God on Film, spoken by Peter Ahn. Well, good morning, Metro. Yeah, good morning to all the parents in the nursery. Uh, just by show of hands, uh, how many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Anyone? All right. How many of you in this room don't even know who Mr. Rogers is because you're too young? Yeah, a couple of you guys. Okay, or well, maybe you are from different uh, parts of the world. That's totally understandable. Now, I will probably guess that the majority of you in this room did not go watch this movie, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? But if you do get a chance, I cannot highly recommend a movie more so than this one. Uh, bring your children. It will be a great family movie, but it, it will definitely leave you uh, crying, but also being inspired and knowing that there are some real good people in this world. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, was uh, a show, was a show that really catered to reaching children. It was a children's show. And, and so growing up, I remember just watching this show every day on PBS. Uh, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, he was a Presbyterian minister. I don't know if you know that. And for 33 years, from 1968 to 2001, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood made its way to every single home in America through people's television sets. For three decades, this show was on impacting children's lives. And the purpose of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, in Fred Rogers' own words, he says that it's an invitation for someone to be close to you. That was the purpose of his show. He wanted to be close to every child that was watching the show. And the purpose of that was to let them know that they are truly loved and that they are capable of loving. That was the purpose of his show, that they are truly loved, not by what they do, but just who they are, and as a result of that, that they are capable of loving. Mr. Rogers cared about the deep emotions that little children go through. Now, you and I may not know this, but the emotional complexities of a child are great. They're as complex as yours. And Mr. Rogers understood this, even from his own life and his own upbringing growing up. And so he wanted to dedicate a show that would impact and be a positive message for children to watch. Because it was during a time and day when there was really no positive television that was coming on that would really help build a child up. It was just to amuse a child, to make a child laugh, or to, for a kid to watch cartoons. And it was quite violent, even back in the 60s as well. And so he really was inspired to create a TV show that would impact the lives of children. He cared about a child's struggle of not being loved. He wanted every child to know that they are truly lovable, not by what they do, but just who they are, that not only were they loved, but they were deeply liked. I don't think much has changed, even as adults today, because all of us, we have a deep need to want to be loved. And we do have a deep need to want to be convinced that we are actually lovable. And for some of us, we've made some horrible decisions in relationships because we've, we've that need or that craving to want to be loved and to know that we are lovable was so great that we made some terrible decisions even in our relationships, but we will do whatever it takes because it is the greatest need, the greatest craving that you and I have today is this need to simply want to be loved and to know that you are lovable, that you truly are lovable. 
Today we're going to take a deep look at this movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And as we do that, we're going to really deeply tie it to one of my favorite passages of all of the Bible. It's the return of the prodigal son. Now we focused on this passage last year. And uh, if you didn't, uh, we're not going to focus on the entire passage. So if you want to get more of an in-depth, the entire passage of this uh, of the sermon. Listen to the sermon about a year ago. I preached on this particular passage. But what we're going to do today is we're going to go verse by verse and we're going to learn a real powerful truth that is not necessarily a truth that is going to be illuminating for you, but it's a truth that God loves you today. And many of you know this to be true because you grew up in the church, but you just know it with your mind. 12 inches down from your mind, if you head south, many of you don't know it with your heart. And the the beauty of what this Christian faith is all about is not just to know cognitively that God loves you, but it's to know deeply within your heart that God thinks the world of you, that he truly loves you just as you are. You don't have to do anything. You can live in this freedom that God gives to you today. We are sort of riding, I'm riding on the coattails of Pastor Kevin Butcher's ministry. Uh, a bunch of us went to Pilgrim Pines uh, a few weeks ago called Camp Metro. And uh, we spent a week, and Kevin was here a couple Sundays ago. He preached a sermon on a drift, and he just kind of continued it. But it was a week long of just deep inner healing of experiencing God's love. And I'm here to tell you that even for me, there are times where I know that God loves me here, but I don't know that he loves me here. And we really run a deficit in our lives when we fail to experience the love that God wants to give to you with your heart. And so today, as we look at this beautiful passage on the parable return of the prodigal son, we're going to look at how God truly loves us. And then we're going to look at some of the pitfalls that actually prevents you and I from experiencing the love of God. All right, so we're going to go verse by verse today, and so hopefully you can just stay with me on this. We're going to go verse by verse, but before we get started, could we just bow our heads for a moment of prayer? God, we just welcome you here today. I ask God that you would just really speak deeply to every single one of us. I thank you for people like Fred Rogers, who dedicated his entire life to wanting to live out the great commandment, even the name of the show Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was his attempt to love his neighbor as himself. And I pray, God, that as we look at one of the most amazing passages of how much you love us, no matter how much we've drifted away from you, I pray, God, that it would uplift us in such a way, God, that we would be set free from some of the things that hold us down. But most of all, God, that, God, it would show us, God, who you truly are and who we truly are. I pray for those in this room that are always hard on themselves. I pray for the perfectionists in these rooms. I pray for those in this room that often just beat themselves up because they feel like they're a failure. I pray today, God, that you would show them how loved they are, but not just loved, but how much you like them just the way they are. And so I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it will be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said... Amen. All right, now turn with me to Luke 15, and we'll look at the first two verses, all right? Verse 11 and 12. Luke 15, verse 11 and 12. Now here, basically, in the chapter of Luke is Jesus going into a deep discourse and different types of parables or lessons or stories about God's love and how he's willing to pursue the lost, all right? How he's willing to pursue a lost child's lost son or daughter of his. And he goes into this story about the prodigal son. He says in verse 11, 
It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now what you need to understand that when the son goes to his father and says, let me have my estate. Basically what he's doing is he's giving the middle finger to his father. He's basically saying that he would like to have his father dead. You don't go to your father and say, can I have my estate? Even today, because many of you are in your father's will. Could you imagine if you went to your dad and said, hey, dad, could you give me my estate? How do you think your father would respond to that? It wouldn't go very well. All right, so it's even offensive today, but could you just imagine 2,000 years ago in a very conservative Jewish culture that this younger son goes to his father and says, I want you dead. Can I have my estate? It wasn't that the father was loving him improperly. No, in fact, the father was loving him beautifully. But for some reason, this son got to a point in his life where he felt like there was something else or something more to be experienced that he thought might be better than living just in the father's house. Have you ever been there before? Where maybe you grew up in the church or you grew up in sort of the, the faith of Christianity and as you've been living it for such a long time, you grew up in it all your life, that at some point in your life you feel like perhaps maybe there's more to life than just this faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you can relate to the younger son because I sure can. And perhaps maybe there was sort of an exhibitionist kind of a mentality where you just want to kind of experiment and check out and check out different things in life. And so what we find here is for this younger son is that when he basically gave the father the middle finger and said, I want you dead, can I have the money? He basically focused on a lifestyle of self-centeredness. And that's really one of the first things that will prevent you and I from not, not just knowing that God loves you, but really from experiencing the love of God is our self-centeredness. Think about this for a second. Think about your relationships. Do you like hanging out with selfish people? Do you like having good friendships with people who only talk about themselves and only wants you to serve them? That is a self-centered approach. And what we find for this younger son is that he had a self-centeredness about him. Though he was experiencing the father's love, it still was not enough for him. And he wanted to sort of experience a different life. He didn't care how much this would hurt the father when he went to him and said, can I have my estate? He didn't even care how that would destroy the father because the father loved his son so beautifully and so perfectly. Because of his self-centeredness, it prevented him from experiencing the true love of God. And I do believe today one of the greatest pitfalls from us to experiencing the love of God today, not just knowing that God loves us, but really experiencing it, is when we are self-centered. No relationship could ever exist and be healthy and be full of love if one of the party is self-centered, when they're only thinking about themselves. And I totally get how easy it is to do that. I totally get how easy it is to say, I'm going to believe in God because I just, I want him to bless me. Oh man, he's already blessed you. And what you need to realize is that when God says you are to love me, it's not God being self-centered. It's God expressing to you through his sacrificial love of what he was willing to do in order for him and in order for you and him to be in a relationship. God was willing to go all the way where he sent his son, Jesus Christ, whom he truly loved with all of his heart. But he knows, God knows, because he's the creator of love, that in order to love someone, you got to be willing to sacrifice some of the things you love the most. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come here, to be humiliated, to be tortured, to be crucified on the cross, and to rise from the dead so that you and I can not only know that we're loved, but know with our heart that we truly are because of what God has done. God loves you today, whether you know it or not. And even if you know it here, 
Can you know it here from your heart? He went all the way because God's love is sacrificial. In order for you and I, and if this younger son just understood the depth of what it meant to love sacrificially, he wouldn't have asked the father for the estate. But he did. He did. And the crazy part of all of this, the father gives it to him. That's the crazy part of it all. The father gives him this, not because he knows that this is going to be a good thing for him. The father knew that when he gave him this estate, that he was going to go out and probably use the money on himself, and it would probably lead to a season of hardship. But he still did it anyway. Why? Because sometimes you only know that God really loves you when, you're, when you go through the hardships and live under the consequences of some of our self-centered choices in life. Mr. Rogers, in his show, he says this. He says, sometimes we need to struggle with the tragedy to feel the gravity of love. Sometimes we need to struggle with the tragedy to feel the gravity of love. Sometimes God will let you struggle with the tragedy so that you can feel the gravity of his love today. Why does God sometimes answer your selfish, self-centered prayer request sometimes? If I can just be honest. Because he loves you so much and he knows how much you want it and he'll give it to you, but then... He'll let you struggle with the tragedy so that you can experience the gravity of his love. Many of us, we came to God today in our lives because we experienced certain tragedies in our lives. Those are pivotal moments for us where we draw closer to God. And Mr. Rogers says sometimes we, str- need the, we need to struggle with the tragedy to feel the gravity of love. Now, what was the self-centered approach of the younger son? What was the self-centered thing that he really struggled with? Turn with me to verse 13. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. There we go. All right. What was it that the son kind of wanted to live into that he felt was a better lifestyle than him just kind of living and staying in the father's house? It was the wild living. The son wanted to party. Can you identify with that a little bit? Just a little bit? Can you identify like you grew up in the church? Parents would never let you go out. My, you know, my, my wife's father didn't even let her go on dates. Wouldn't let her go to the senior prom. I thanked him for that later on. Right? <laughs> but I feel bad for her. Like just sheltered. And then you go to college and your parents are no longer there. You don't, can you, like, you want to party a little bit. See what it's like. See what this lifestyle could afford you in your life. And so this wild living for the son was really summed up in he partied a lot, hired a lot of prostitutes, so he had a ton of sex. He probably drank, got drunk, just experienced the wild lifestyle. Now, I don't want you to think that that's wild, that's the only thing to wild living. Because some of you are saying, well, that's not me anymore. No, really what wild living is, is a conscious choice that you make to live outside of the father's house. And you know what true wild living is? It's not you just spending all your money on booze and and sex and different things like that. You know what true wild living is when you really look at this? It's when you use the money that you have only for yourself. Because that's exactly what the younger son did. He just used every single dollar that he owned only for himself. Listen, it will be very difficult for you to experience the bounty of God's love and know that your life is blessed when you use all the money that God has blessed you and entrusted you with just for yourself. There is a Christian responsibility that he wants you to see today. 
that he wants you to know that he wants you to bless his kingdom by being generous in how you give to the things that impact people's lives that will further the gospel message because part of us of why we're here is to have a deep relationship with God and part of Mr. Rogers' show was to know that you are loved so that you can go and also love others. And that is a responsibility that God has given to you and to me. And part of what the younger son didn't get was that he had all this money from the father and he didn't use a single penny of it for, for, for things of, of God or to bless the father. He used it all for himself. Now, you got to ask yourself today, are you living that kind of wild lifestyle? It's not about certain things you're doing like partying and staying out late at night. But are you just spending all your money just on yourself? Is it just for you and for the advancement of you? And so this younger son finds himself away from the father and he lives in this wild life thinking that he has freedom now, but in actuality he really doesn't. And he struggles with a very difficult, difficult life. Many years ago, um, before I went into ministry, I was working at NBC News at 30 Rockefeller Center. And um, one of my close friends who I grew up with, a pastor's kid, and if you're a pastor's kid, you know what a pastor's kid's life is kind of like in a Korean church. I mean, his father would make him read the Bible mandatorily, regularly, make him memorize verses. Because he was a pastor's kid, he had to behave a certain way in the church. Very sheltered life. While I was working, during lunchtime, we had lunch, and then he just sat with me and said, Hey, man, Peter, I just want you to know that I'm going to take a break from church and from God just for a few years because I just want to live the wild life. I want to go out and I want to party. I want to go to clubs. I want to have sex with different women. I mean, I just want to do that. And, and he said, I'm only going to do it for a few years and that's it. And I'm going to come back to the church. And I said, okay. But I said, be careful. And I got to believe that he had a lot of fun for the few years that he's been experiencing that wild lifestyle. This was 20 years ago. But Metro, my friend has not come back to God. And what was once fun has now been very difficult for him because he's made some bad decisions and had some horrible relationships that's really deeply wounded him. How many of us, because we wanted to live the wild life, we made some horrible decisions relationally as a result of it and we got deeply wounded and hurt because of it. We got abused emotionally, sexually, physically because of it from certain relationships that we entered into because we just wanted the wildlife. We had this sort of this self-centered way of approach of saying, I want to just have a lot of fun. The son wanted to have a lot of fun, and he did. And afterwards, he ended up choosing a life of utter poverty. So look what happens. Look at the result of what happens when we choose to live outside the father's house and not experience his love. Look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a, to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed, his, to, field his pigs, to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The son, as a result of him using all of his wealth on wild living, had nothing left. There was a severe famine that happened. He couldn't find work, and so he ends up working by feeding pigs. And as he was feeding these pigs, because they were actually eating, he was feeding them, he realized that these pigs are actually living better than him because he's dying of starvation. He's, he's slowly, his body is slowly becoming emaciated because he's losing so much weight and he's so hungry that he looks at a pig and he says, even what they're looking, what they're eating appears to be delicious to him. 
And that's kind of what happens when we choose to live outside of God's love, when we choose to sort of take our lives into our own hands and say, you know, we're going to just kind of live outside the Father's house and we're going to do our thing. We kind of sort of surrender to living a, pov- a life of poverty, not, not necessarily financially, but really it's the poverty of our spiritual soul, of our emotional state, of our life. And, and, and sometimes when you look at a story like this, sometimes when we choose to live our own life, to fulfill our own desires on whatever it is that we want to fulfill it, animals will even live a better life than we do. Sometimes. And that's why we should not choose to live outside the Father's house. Look what happens in verse 17. Now, this is a pivotal moment for the son now. In verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is a real pivotal moment for the son. He came to his senses and he said, you know what? I'm going to go back to my father's house because even my father's servants are treated much better than I'm being treated. They have food to eat. They're well taken care of. And he says, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go back to my father's house. Again, Mr. Rogers' quote was, sometimes we need to struggle with the tragedy to feel the gravity of his love. As a son was experiencing the tragedy of his choices, he realizes that the father's love is far better now. And so he says that he's going to go back. Mr. Rogers, when you think about the tragedies, what sort of tragedies have you gone through in your life that's kind of led you to experience the gravity of the Father's love. I hope there are some moments. But for Mr. Rogers, um, some of the tragedies that he's had to experience was that he was severely bullied as a little child. His nickname in school was Fat Freddy because he was overweight. And kids would just make fun of him because he was overweight. And they would keep calling him Fat Freddy. So he was deeply scarred by that. He had so much anger as a result of it, but his parents would never let him use his words to express any anger. Can you imagine that? That as a child that you want to express your frustration and your anger, but your parents say, you know what? Don't use your words to be angry. Don't use those words. You know, most of the times we always say, use your words, use your words. He grew up in a home and they said, don't use your words for anger. And so you know what he, you know the only way how he was able to express his anger was through music. That's why he loved playing the piano. And he was a beautiful, beautiful piano. That's why he had such a close relationship with Yo-Yo Ma because Yo-Yo Ma was an amazing musician as well. If he just came to his senses, the younger son came to his senses and said, you know what, I can't live like this anymore. But here's the thing about this younger son, though, that was an issue. He didn't think he can be the son again to the father. He just believed the best case scenario for him would be that he would just be a servant. You see, what's the other thing that really prevents us from experiencing God's love? And I believe today, if you're here today and you're struggling to experience God's love, maybe you know he loves you, but you're struggling to experience it. It's really what this younger son is experiencing here. Here he is, emaciated, starving hungry. He doesn't just say, I'm going to go to my father, ask him to forgive me, and maybe he'll take me back. No, he doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I'll never, my father will never receive me as his son again, so I'm just going to be his servant. I'm going to go and ask if I can just be his servant. What was the thing that he truly struggled with? You know what it was? It was his shame. It was the depth of his shame. Shame, when you look at it in the dictionary, is defined as deep humiliation and embarrassment. That's not a 
That's a decent definition. But you know, Pastor Kevin Butcher at the retreat, he gave an entire talk on shame, and it was just so beautiful. And this is how he defines shame. He says, you know, uh, shame is so different from guilt. He says, guilt tells me what mistake I made. Shame tells me I am the mistake. That's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt tells me that I made a mistake. Shame tells me I am a mistake. And this younger child, this younger son, he did not believe he made a mistake when he asked the father for the estate. He believed he is the mistake. And so because he believed he's the mistake, he never believed that the father would take him back. And so as a result of it, repentance was a too good of a thing for him because he believed he was such a mistake that he decided to embrace just being the father's servant. How many of you today, because of your shame, because of the shame that you've done, some of the things maybe you've, had, you've committed in your own life, that to you it wasn't internalized as you making a mistake, it was internalized as you are the mistake. And so as a result of that, you're not able to experience God's love. How can you experience God's love when you feel like you're a mistake? Impossible today. You might be able to cognitively embrace the fact that you're loved, but you're never going to feel in your heart that you are loved by God who sent his son to die for you on the cross, resurrect from the dead, because you feel like you're a mistake. You're not a mistake. Yes, you make mistakes. I make mistakes. But we are not a mistake. Amen? If we were a mistake, God would have never sent Jesus Christ to come and die for us on the cross. He wouldn't have done that. But he knows and we're capable of making mistakes, but he knows we're not a mistake. And so why do we feel the shame of certain things that we've done? And why do we hold ourselves down and believe that we are a mistake and we prevent ourselves from experiencing the true love that God wants you to experience today? The son didn't even think the father would take him back. He thought the best case scenario would be to be the father's slave. He had no idea that the father would even take him back. How many of you feel like a mistake today? Mr. Rogers had a, sh had a, a, a puppet on the show called Daniel the Tiger Puppet. Now listen, if you know anything today on Netflix, there's a show called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. That's a spinoff of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So if you guys ever want some good programming for your children, go on Netflix and play Daniel's Tiger's Neighborhood. It will be an excellent programming for your child to watch and to grow so they can be in tune with what they're feeling. But Daniel the Tiger was kind of like playing Mr. Rogers' true self in many ways. And he had a show in, in uh, he had an episode where Daniel the Tiger asked Mr. Rogers, and you heard, I think you heard a little bit of it here in the preview. He says, Mr. Rogers, am I a mistake? Am I a mistake? And Mr. Rogers says, no, you're not. Why would you think you're a mistake? You are not a mistake. And then he goes on and sings a song called, I like you as you are. And it's just so beautiful. Mr. Rogers believed that every child at one point in their lives will come to the conclusion or struggle with the fact that perhaps maybe they are a mistake. That if they grew up in a real rough home, maybe didn't have the kind of proper support from their parents, that they might actually believe that they truly are a mistake. And so Mr. Rogers worked so hard to help kids to know that they are not a mistake. If the younger son in the story, in Luke, knew that he was not a mistake, he would have thought about asking the father to forgive him, hoping that maybe he would have a chance to be his son again. But because of his shame, because he knew him and he believed that he is the mistake, 
he never even dreamed and dared to dream that the father would take him back. Metro, shame is from hell. It's not from God. It's from hell. How many of us, because of our shame today, we feel like we're a mistake? How many, because of our shame, we feel like we're kind of a waste of life? I remember when I was in college and God called me to be a pastor when I was in high school. But when I got to college, I convinced myself out of it. The main reason why is because I just had so much. I struggled with such a wealth of sin. I just said, there's no way that God wants me to be a pastor. And for me, because of that shame that I felt of all the things that I did that weren't right, I felt like I didn't deserve God's forgiveness. And so there was a point in time where I didn't even ask God to forgive me of my sins because I didn't feel like I deserved God's forgiveness. Because the shame made me to believe that I truly am a mistake. One of, I think, Mr. Rogers, it didn't come out in the movie, but I believe one of his favorite passages of Scripture, and David reminded me of this during sermon practice this week, was Psalms 139, where it says, You created me my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's room. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, God knit you in your mother's womb. He didn't make a mistake when he created you. You're perfect in his eyes. Growing up in an all blue-collar, white, predominantly Italian, Irish neighborhood, some of you know my story. The kids were so mean to me because I was one of the few Asians in school. And they would make fun of how small my eyes are. I got small eyes. My eyes aren't very big. And if you're Asian, you know how we prize the big eyes because we want to look very Western. And we would go to the ends of the earth so that we can have those big eyes. Right? And like I remember like when our kids came out, one of the first things we say, oh, their eyes big. Oh, their eyes big. Right? And now there's so much surgery that you can get to make your eyes big if you want. But the kids, I mean, they were so brutal back in the 80s. They just kept making fun of my eyes. And one of the things that they said that I hated is that they always said, you know, Peter, I'm going to blindfold you with dental floss. Horrible thing to say. But they would say things like that. So I hated my eyes growing up. I hated being Korean because of the shame it caused me. And if you look at some of my pictures, I actually, you don't, you don't have, I ripped them up and I threw them away. They were ridiculous because I took pictures like in middle school with my eyes like exaggerated, trying to blow it up as big as I can so that my eyes could look normal. But when you look at it, I look like a zombie. I look crazy because my eyes are so big. I had a lot of shame in being Korean, and part of that even impacted my relationship with my wife while we were dating and stuff. I looked down on Korean people because I was so looked down upon because I was Korean. It's shame will do that to you. Shame will make you feel like your eyes are a mistake, that God made a mistake with your eyes. Shame will make you feel like you have too many freckles. <laughs> when I was in Korea a couple years ago for my sabbatical, my wife was like, get laser and take all the freckles out. Make it clean. Make it clean. I was like, I don't want my mom. was like, do it, do it, do it. And your face is so nasty. You got so much freckles. I was like, no. This is my face. I have to be okay. I put sunblock on, but I still get the freckles. This is who I am. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And I have to embrace that. I'm not a mistake. You're not a mistake. Your body is not a mistake. Everything about you is perfect. God fearfully and wonderfully made you. Can you let go of that shame and experience God's love for you today?
because even the son struggled with this. So look what happens. Look how the father helps him. And how can we overcome our shame? Look at verse 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The father sees the son from a distance. You have to understand the scenario here, all right? When the son gives you the middle finger and leaves and takes all your money and walks out of the house, you don't go and greet him by running to him. Because in order for a Jewish father to greet him, he had to lift up his robe to run and to greet him. It was, he had no dignity at this point. You would wait till the son would at least come to you. But the father didn't do that. He ran to his son. He greeted him with hugs and with kisses. I mean, it was just one of the most denigrating things any father could do. I mean, if my child gave me the middle finger and said, I want you to die, they would probably see death before me. I'm just being serious. Think about it, parents. Can you imagine if your parent, kids did that to you? I mean, I don't know what I'm capable of if that happened. And yet, this father, in a deeply respected Jewish culture, Jesus says he gets up and he runs. And this is God because the father is God. He doesn't care about his dignity. That's why he would send his son to be crucified and be spit upon and be tortured for you and for me. He has no dignity when it comes to loving you because he wants to show you how much he does. And he runs to him and he tries to hug him and kiss him and, and he does. How is the father able to do that? How is he able to do it? It's because of his compassion. That's the key word in that passage is compassion, right? Now in the dictionary, compassion means sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others, right? But that's a decent translation, but I don't like compassion being associated with pity, right? Because I don't like when somebody gives me pity. Right? But anyway, but in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament Greek, which is what, what the New Testament, the original language, what the New Testament is written on, written, written on uh, the translation of compassion really means to feel with or to suffer with. That's why the father had no dignity. He didn't care about his dignity. Why? Because he felt with the son. He suffered with the son while he was gone. Yeah, he may not have done the wild living, but he suffered with him. And when he saw him, and he saw how emaciated he looked because he was so thin, because he was dying of starvation, the father felt with him. And he ran over and he hugged him with kisses and embraced him. God loves you, and I hope you believe that right now. He loves you because he feels the weight of your shame. And he's willing to suffer with you through it. He feels the weight of any of the challenges that you're going through in your life. He doesn't look at you and say, come on, get better. Suck it up, Peter. Just come on, do this. I mean, I died for you. Come on, what more do you want? But he feels with you. And maybe for some of you in this room, because you've been so numb, because growing through certain things as a child, you've become so numb. And, you, and that was a survival skill for you as a little child. But what was a survival skill, survival skill as a little child has now become a curse because you're an adult now. And you still don't know how to feel. And you fear intimacy. You fear certain things in your life. You fear relationships because of the deep, deep shame. And so you don't know how to feel. And, and God is not necessarily asking you how to feel. But what he wants you to know today is that he's feeling for you. He feels with you. He's willing to suffer, and he's suffered with you. 
The father looked out that window every single day, suffering, feeling the pain and the aloneness and the isolation the son was experiencing. In the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Fred Rogers was swimming. He swam a mile every single day. And in the late 50s, he decides to weigh himself, and he jumps on a scale. And the scale said 143 pounds. And he said, huh, 143 pounds. That means I love you. Because I is one letter, love is four, and you is three. And from that day on, he said, from the late 50s to the day he died, Mr. Rogers weighed exactly 143 pounds. Why? Because he wanted people to know that watched his show. He wanted people to know that he talked to and connected with, that he loved them. That he truly, truly loved them. His son on the show, he came on the, 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 the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor. He said, my father was like living with a second Christ. All he did was love. Now, I'm not here to tell you that God weighs exactly 143 pounds. I'm not here to tell you that. But his love for you is perfectly weighed through his son, Jesus Christ. And you need to know that today. Not just with your head, but you need to know that with your heart. God will forever be a God of love for all eternity because he sent Jesus Christ to die for you and to resurrect from the dead so that we can have life Will you let God love you today? That's the more important question because he loves you. Will you let God love you? The son, after experiencing the hugs and kisses from the father, still struggled with his shame. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son experiences the hugs and the kisses from the father. You could just imagine at that moment if he just said, I'm sorry, father. I'm sorry for what I've done. He would have embraced his identity again of being a child of God, a child of the father. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He rehearses. He says what he was rehearsing his whole way back from to, to his father's house. And that's the danger behind this, that when you and I live in shame, even when God is pouring his love upon you, sometimes because of that, we are unwilling to let go of our shame and we still are willing to live in it, even though the God, father so lovingly shows us how much he does love and care for us. What was the son, what should he have done here? How can you and I overcome our shame today? There's really one thing only that we learned at this retreat that I thought was so beautiful. If you want to overcome your shame today, it requires you to become vulnerable and honest. It's the only way to overcome your shame. If you want to overcome your shame today, you have to learn to be vulnerable and honest in order for you to overcome your shame. So if the son just embraced his shame and just said, you know what, dad, forgive me for what I've done. I mean, I did a horrible thing. I'm so sorry for telling you that I'd rather have you dead than alive. Forgive me. He would have experienced the father's love in a much greater way. And he would have experienced his identity again, coming back to him as a child of God. But he didn't because of his shame. Dr. Benet Brown, I got this quote from Kevin Butcher, and it's one of the most powerful quotes I've seen in a very long time. I think we have it up there. Can we put it up? Vulnerability is the birthplace of joy, of belonging, of love. You either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. I'm going to read that again. Vulnerability is the birthplace of joy, of belonging, of love. You either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and you hustle for your worthiness. 
Are you willing to be vulnerable and honest about your story today? Will you embrace it and live inside of it? Because if you don't, the alternative is that you'll stand outside of it and you're going to hustle for your worthiness. And when we have to hustle for our worthiness, it never, never bodes well for us. Can you be vulnerable today? Can you be yourself today? The good, the bad, and even the ugly in your life. You're not to be vulnerable and honest with everyone that you meet, but maybe just with a select few of people that you do truly, truly trust. Mr. Rogers knew, and he embraced vulnerability, and he knew the pathway of a child was for them to be and experience God's love. But the only way they can experience that is if they actually do become vulnerable. And they're able to wrestle with some of the deep emotions that they went through. And we saw it in the preview. But when Robert Kennedy was assassinated, he entitled an entire show on assassination. Right? He also dedicated an entire show, we saw that on the preview as well, on divorce. Because he knew how much that devastates a child's life when parents get divorced. So he dedicated an entire show on that. He dedicated a show on dealing with anger. And giving you a space, giving children a space and a place to express their anger. Because as a child, he was not able to do that. And Daniel the puppet was the one in how he was able to do that. Daniel the puppet was the vulnerable and honest Mr. Rogers. That's the character. So whatever Daniel the puppet would share and talk, that was the vulnerable and honest Mr. Rogers when he was struggling with some of these stuff, some of the things. And even the stuff that he was struggling as an adult, especially as a child. It was Fred Rogers trying to be vulnerable and honest so that he can live inside of his story rather than standing outside of it because he did not want to hustle for his worthiness. God did not call you to hustle for your worthiness today. You're worthy if you can just be honest and vulnerable about who you are. Warts and all. Warts and all. Mr. Rogers says the greatest evil is when someone makes you feel less than you are. And when you don't share your story when you don't live inside of your story and be vulnerable about it, the world will convince you that you're less than you are because you're so ashamed of the past or the things in your life. You're so ashamed of it and you try to hustle for your worthiness and you begin to believe that what the world deems to be important is really what you should live for. And that's why so many of us, we, 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 we surrender and we eat this fruit of the American dream, which is not God's dream for your life. Success is not God's dream for you. Honesty and vulnerability is because then you will know that there's a God who deeply loves you and you'll never be controlled by your shame. Will you be honest and vulnerable today? I got to do this fast. This week I had our staff do this. We learned this at the retreat as well. I got some great stuff from this retreat. This is the mask and this is my mask. I had everyone write, when people meet you at church, what do you want them to see? And that's it. That's why you see the eyes. This is who you really are, I said. Can you write out who you really are? That you may, nail, that you may not want people to see. I'm going to read you my mask. Here's what I want you to see when you meet me, all right? Especially if you're new, this is what I want you to see. A great thinker. Humble. Confident, super disciplined, merciful, always happy, a risk taker, lust free, a five-star leader, like a five-star general, a five-star leader, emotionally healthy, great faith, 
a self-care machine, a voracious reader. I have it all together, a great husband and a father, always righteous. That's what I would love for you to see. But here is who I really am. So there's three things that I think I struggle with the most. Um, And actually, through the retreat, Kevin really helped me to see that shame is actually undergirding all of it. And that's what I learned. I've been going to counseling for seven, eight years. And uh, a two-hour lunch with Kevin Butcher was, I got more from those two hours than even the eight years of counseling I got. And I got a phenomenal counselor. But he helped me to see things about myself that I did not know. The three things that really kind of I struggle with the most is my impatience, my fear in general, and my self-centeredness. So here I am. Here's the real Peter on. There are times when I'm so burnt out and tired, I don't care. I just don't care. Shame brings out the worst in me. Often I feel tired all the time, and yet I'm still a workaholic at at times. I get rageful when I'm disrespected. I'm distant with my sister Ellen, and I have very little desire to want to change that. I'm afraid that one day Metro will want me to leave before I want to. I love my children so much that if anyone hurts them, I don't know if I would have the faith to go on because I think I'm capable of killing the person who hurts them. I'm often never satisfied. I get so depressed when I feel extreme anger because it reminds me of my father. Even though I don't act out on it, on that anger, the fact that I feel it, It depresses me for days and sometimes even for weeks. I'm confused a lot of times. I struggle to have faith in God. I would rather be more right than righteous. I worry way too much. I fight and I'm very mean to my mother, especially when she nags or criticizes me or my wife or my kids. And I'm concerned that I'm going to hurt my wife, Jenny, by cheating on her one day. I often feel like a loser, a failure. And you may not know this, but this is true of me. I struggle to be in large rooms with people I don't know. I hate it. I hate going to parties because of that. And sometimes I just want to go away and I want to be away from people for long periods of time, even away from my family. I'm tempted to lie many times when I feel like somebody is is pointing out something I did wrong or something that might be causing me shame. I'd rather lie than tell the truth and be honest. That's who I am. And I am trying, and I'm going to continue to try to live my best to live inside this story so I don't have to hustle for my worthiness. I hope you will as well. The younger son was struggling with that. He really was. But look at how the father helps him. I love it because the father doesn't just say, shut up. 
Stop saying what you're saying, but look at how he, he receives what his son said. Look at verse 22, and I end here. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now we don't know exactly how the younger son received all this, but you got to read between the lines here. That as he was rehearsing that speech and he said it before his father, but then the father says, give me the ring, bring the robe, bring the sandals, restoring him as his son. A servant didn't get a ring, didn't get a robe, didn't get those kinds of sandals. Restoring his identity, eating that fattened calf was probably the first time he's eaten meat in months. That you can only imagine that he was living in the father's love and he no longer was going to live a life where he's going to hustle for his worthiness, but he's going to live in the father and just be who he is. And he, I'm sure that he connected with God and say, I'm sorry for what I've done. What I love about this, this last part of this passage is that God is a partier. God's a party animal, guys. He didn't have no party pooper. He's a party animal. He's into the wild living, but the wild living builds you up. It doesn't deplete you and destroy you. In the movie, there was another man in the show, and we saw it on the previous. His name is Mr. Clemens. He was a black police officer. He entered the show and was a regular on the show when, at that time, black people did not have common roles or recurring roles in television shows. Mr. Rogers created this character once Martin Luther King was assassinated. And he was a black police officer. Get that. When there were no black police officers during that time. And there was a part in the show where you saw it even in the preview where, and this is part of our U.S. history, that there was a time when white people believed that when black people entered into the pool, they contaminated it. And so they would put chemicals and pour it in the pool to get them to get out, but to try to clean the pool so that they can go inside of it. I mean, it's horrible. And so what did Mr. Rogers do when he saw that? He had an episode where he had a little pool, put his feet in there. He said it was a hot day, had a towel on his shoulder. And Mr. Clemens walks in and he says, hey, Mr. Clemens, why don't you join me? And Mr. Clemens says, I would love to, but I don't have a towel. And Mr. Rogers says, well, I got one. We can share. And he said, sure. And so he takes off his shoes, put his feet in the pool with Mr. Rogers. They're talking, doing life. They're sharing each other's towers, showing every child in America to know that you can have a relationship. You can share. It doesn't matter what color skin you have. You can do that. During one of the tapings, after the taping was over, Mr. Clemens was just kind of walking around the set, and he heard Fred Rogers say, I love you. And he said, what did you say? Did you just say you love me? And Mr. Rogers smiled and giggled, and he said, Mr. Clemens, I've been telling you for the past two years, every single day, that I love you. And now you finally hear me? It took you two years to hear that I love you? And, and Mr. Clemens, he did the interview, he just started breaking down. He said his father never told him he loved him. He said this was the first person that ever told him, a man that told him that he loved him. He said from that point on, Mr. Rogers became his surrogate father. God today is telling you that he loves you. He's been telling you every single day of your life. And maybe you haven't heard it, but today my hope and prayer is that you would hear it from your father. And not just hear it with your ears, but you would also experience it with your heart. Towards the end of the movie of Won't You Be My Neighbor, Mr. Rogers invites this young little boy, a paralyzed boy, um, who had a rare tumor, 
And this tumor prevented him from walking and from using his hands properly. And so as a result, uh, he was confined to a wheelchair. You can only imagine during that time how hard it must have been for this child to be accepted. I mean, it's hard enough for a child who has disabilities to be accepted in our world today, even though we've made some great strides as a society to really embrace and love them. But can you imagine during that time being a part of a society where when you had a wheelchair as a child, how kids would not accept you? And so Mr. Rogers had him on the show, had him share about what, he, what illness he has, and talks to him a little bit. And then he says, can I sing you a song, a song that I love to sing to people. It's called, It's You I Like. And none of this was scripted, but I want you to watch how this young boy responds. None of this is scripted, but he was feeling the beauty of that song. Can we put that clip on, Tim? Do you know that song that I sometimes sing called It's You I Like? Uh-huh. I'd like to sing that to you and with you. Okay, okay, sure. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now. The way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your fancy chair, that's just beside you, but it's you I like, every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feeling, whether old. Or new. I hope that you remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like, it's you yourself, it's you, it's you. And there must be times when you do feel blue. Uh-huh. What do you do during those times? Well, it depends. Sometimes do you make up stories? Yeah. Or read? Yeah. Or play? I know that's the way I did when I was a little boy. Had all kinds of things that did I would Did it help? Do. It did help. Yeah. Does it help you? Yeah. We have to all discover our own ways, don't we? Mm-hmm. Of doing things when we're feeling blue. Mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers' show was about inviting people, especially children, to experience love. It was an invitation to be close to someone, to be loved, and to know that they are truly lovable so that they can go out and in turn love others as well. And today... On this Sunday, through this beautiful passage of Scripture, God is asking you, won't you be his neighbor? Won't you be close to him? Won't you be my son, God says? Won't you be my daughter? Because in the end, it's you God likes. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you he likes.
the way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your toys, they're just beside you, but it's you he likes. Every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new, he hopes that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you he likes, it's you yourself. It's you, it's you he likes. Will you lay down your self-centered way of living? And will you stop living in shame today? Will you be honest and vulnerable so that you can know today that it's you that God likes? That God not only loves you, but that he truly likes you. Let's pray. God, help us to believe that it's you, that you really like us. That you not only love us, but that you truly like us. Not because of what we do, not because of what we are going to become, not because that we're going to fulfill the purpose that you have for our lives. None of that matters at the end of the day, because it's just us that you like, just for who we are. Even the things that we've done to make mistakes. I pray for my brothers and sisters, God, that if there's anything that shames them today, that you would lift that up, and God, that you would release them from that shame. And God, that you would convince them that, yes, they've made mistakes, but they are not a mistake. Help them to be honest and vulnerable so that we can experience the power, the ferociousness, the wrath of your love and your grace that you want to so beautifully give to us in our lives. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for inviting us back home, even though, God, in many ways we don't feel like we deserve it. But thank God that it's not about how we feel, but it's about how you do. And so may we be able to experience your love for us today. In your name we pray. Amen. There's some next steps that I'd love for you to take. It's on your communication card. Can you just flip it over, if you will, for just a moment? The first thing is this. If you've, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, and you definitely sense there's something happening in your heart, please check that off. We're going to get back to you with some information. But you can also make sure you go out to the next table, which is the second table on my left, and there are help. they will... A pastor will pray with you, uh, give you a new believer's packet that will kind of help you to get your faith started. But listen, you can't do this by yourself. Please allow us to come alongside of you and to nurture and help you to grow in your faith in God. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. The second, I'm going to surrender my wild living lifestyle and turn to God as my father and ask him to show me his love. That you will actually ask him to show you his love. Third, I will be honest and vulnerable with someone about my shame. This week, can you connect with somebody and be honest and vulnerable about maybe some of the sh things that causes you shame? It will really, really, really release you from it. And then the very last thing, I'd love to invite any of you who have never come over to my home to learn a little bit more about this church, especially if you're a newcomer. Connections Dinner will be on the 22nd of this month. It will be at 4 p.m. at my home if you're interested. I'd love to share with you a little bit more about this church. We're more than just Sundays. We're a lot more than that. And I'd love for you to give me the opportunity to share with you a little bit about that and we can break bread together. So if you're interested, please check that off.